This is great. How you guys doing? Everybody's looking good online, I can tell. We've got a handful of people in the room. They're looking good, too. So we are all on the same page. Now, the question is, are we smelling good? Did you do an extra few sprays of cologne or perfume because it's Sunday? You know what I'm saying? You got to have that Sunday cologne. This ain't no Stetson. You can't get this at the grocery store. It's Sunday. We got to honor God. I don't know why I'm talking about cologne and perfume. I'm just really excited to be in the house of God. There's something different about sharing God's word up here. Uh, I, I loved our studio in the underground. I love being down there and preaching and sharing God's word. But coming up here gives me a sense of significance. And, and, and I, I can have vision that what the enemy tried to do to destroy our church just didn't work. It didn't work. The Bible is very clear. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And your resilience and your faith is inspiring. And I really believe as our vision for 2021 is rebuilding in strength, we have to rebuild on the right foundation. And that foundation is obviously Jesus. But there are some foundational beliefs that we must have. It is my job uh, to, to lead this church into the destiny and the promises of God. When our, my wife and I were prayed for, Bishop Omer gave a, a prophetic word that I will bring up at least once a year. And he said that uh, Moses saw places he couldn't go and Joshua went places he couldn't see. And when I unpacked that, I realized that Moses had a vision for the promised land, but he wasn't the one to get them there. And there was this succession that took place in that moment. And some of you were there October 13, 2019. And this foundation series is important because it's basically saying if we don't know what we believe, we can't get to where we're going. We got to know what we believe before we know where we're going. And yes, I believe there's favor. And yes, I believe there's blessing. And yes, I believe that we can build something awesome together as a church family. And by the way, I said this last week, I'm not just talking about church. So many times the context is church, church, church building. I'm talking about your finances. I'm talking about your future. I'm talking about the promises of God over your family, generational stuff. I'm talking about your grandchildren. I'm talking about rebuilding everything the enemy tried to destroy. And we have to do it by building the right family foundation. Because my experience has been when I've built things in my life, the enemy will watch me build it if he knows it's on a bad foundation. So that once it's there, then he can come in and destroy it because he knows, oh, that's not going to work. I don't know if you know this, but the enemy knows the word. He tries to use it against God's people. He tried to use it against Jesus. And I'm saying if we build something on the right foundation, and these might not be the most exciting sermon series. We might not, might not be the thing like we used to do Oasis at the movies that was cool and awesome. So it might not be cool, but it'll be transformative and powerful. And I don't know about you, but coming out of the year we've had, I don't want cool, I want power. The Bible says the gospel is a, a, a powerful gospel unashamed of the good news for it. It's the power of God for those who are being saved. I feel like preaching already. I feel like preaching. So this is a uh, message. is kind of a little bit of a part two from last week. I decided to speak on salvation twice because there's no way in 35 minutes that I could break down such a powerful, powerful thing. And if you haven't got a chance to watch last week's sermon, please do. It was called what must I do to be saved? And I say that a little downcast because I pride myself on having good sermon titles. And last week, it just didn't come to me. And maybe God's teaching me a lesson. Maybe he's trying to humble me. 
And so today on part two, I'm going to be preaching from Romans 5. And we're going to go through the whole thing line by line because there are a few chapters of scripture that are more profound to what salvation is all about than Romans 5. And so keeping with the bad title that I had last week, I thought it was a pretty good sermon, bad title, but with keeping with the bad title, I feel like we're on a roll here. The name of my message today, are you ready? Drum roll, please. It's called Romans 5. <laughs> That's it. It's all I got. Sometimes you just need the word. You know, it ain't flowing yet. So forgive the title, but the word is still powerful. Again, Romans 5. And I want you to open your Bibles to Romans 5. We're going to go through every single line, every single line in Romans 5. Verse 1 begins this. First of all, let me just pray. Because somebody in the heart needs to be prepared to listen to this. So, Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what you are doing. We thank you that you are awesome. So, Lord, we ask that you bless this message, that you soften hearts ahead of time so that the word can grow and bear fruit in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, verse 1, I, I hopefully I can get through this in the time that I have, because I could preach a whole message on verse one alone. This is actually the verse of this passage of scripture and praying about how to communicate what salvation is that I stayed on the longest. It simply says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are a couple of passages of scripture in the Bible that I believe that if you got right, and, and, and uh, forgive me of saying this way, there are a couple of passages that if you got these passages right in your life, you could almost put, I'm not telling you to do it, you could put the Bible away and you would live a pretty good life. You know, so many times we like, I read three chapters a day. I read eight chapters a day. And I'm glad you're reading your Bible, but I want to tell you something there are a few passages of scripture that if you get them deep down in your spirit, if you get them deep down in your soul, your life would be changed forever. And I'm not suggesting you could put your Bible away and be good, but I'm telling you, there's a few passages of scripture that if you got that in your heart, man, you would live a fruitful life. And this is one of them. We've been justified by faith and we have peace with God. Justified. Justified is, a, is a, a Greek word that means judicial approval. It has a legal and authoritative thing. It's not that you're justified because you're awesome. God says it, and he's the righteous judge, and what he says goes down. When a person is accused of a crime and they're getting ready to hear the verdict, the whole courtroom is quiet and silent, waiting for the judge to say guilty or not guilty. And in our country, even if the judge says guilty, it doesn't matter if he wasn't guilty, he's guilty. If he says he's not guilty, it doesn't matter if he was guilty, the judge has the authority to say not guilty or guilty according to the evidence. And it doesn't matter what anyone in the room thinks. And so when Jesus 
through his shed blood says you are not guilty. You stand before me righteous. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter what your mama thought, your daddy thought, your old boss thought. Doesn't matter what your ex thought. If Jesus says you're righteous, he has the authority to override everyone else. And matter of fact, I want to tell you right now, Jesus is overriding what some other people had to say about you. The prosecutor is the devil saying, no, 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 no. They're guilty. And Jesus says, no, they're free. Justified. I think we got to realize that there are so many things in society that battle against being justified. You know, uh, last year during the pandemic, I uh, filmed a video led by the Lord. And I pretended to be a rapper named Tuply. Because nobody was, every, all the toilet paper was sold out everywhere. And so I put a roll of toilet paper around my neck like a gold chain. And I pretended, made up raps about toilet paper under the rap name Tuply. And it kind of went viral where people started to share it. I got followed by some celebrity over it. And I went from 2,400 followers on Instagram to about 30,000 in a very short amount of time. And I noticed that after I got past about 10 or 15,000, I'll get all these DMs about, do I want to be verified? Like, I, we can get you verified. And verified is when they put the blue check mark against, uh, next to your Twitter account or the blue check mark against your Instagram account. And being verified in this culture is, is if we're not careful, becomes more important than being justified. And we put more attention on a blue check than red drops, I'm preaching already. Because it is Jesus' blood that was shed so that you could be justified. I don't need the blue check, I got the red drops. Jesus was hung on a cross, his blood makes me white as snow. I'm justified. I got nothing to prove. I got nothing to prove, I got nothing to prove. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness was the devil saying, if you are the son of God, prove it. We can live our lives justified. We don't need to worry about being verified. Justified means you're made righteous, cleared of all punishment. By God's grace, you receive the inward persuasion to see yourself the right way. It's not just God sees you and he loves you. Yes, but that word justified is so profoundly powerful that it, 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 God sees you that way, yes, but it also comes with this ability to see yourself that way. Some people say, I know the way God sees me, I just need to learn to see myself that way. That's not true. You don't know the way God sees you, right? Have you ever heard a person in that courtroom where the judge says not guilty? You see what they do? It doesn't even matter if they did it. They hugging their lawyers and attorneys. You, I've never seen a person where the judge says not guilty and they go, I just need to learn to see myself that way. Just not guilty. He said I wasn't guilty, but now I just need to learn to see myself as not guilty. You don't need to learn nothing. Go home. You're free. And I think we hang around in the courtroom waiting for Jesus to change his mind. Let me earn what you just said about me. Let me show you more evidence. Matter of fact, can you imagine if the person who was being accused would go help the prosecutor? Matter of fact, 
Even in America, we have the Fifth Amendment. We, can, we don't have to say something to incriminate ourselves, but yet in the kingdom, we want to incriminate ourselves. There's a provision in our Constitution that if someone asks you a question and you're wrong and you're guilty, you could be quiet. Some of y'all need to plead the Fifth Amendment in the kingdom and just be quiet and stop talking. You are free. You are justified. It is the shed blood of Jesus on the cross that makes you who you are. He said what he said. My attorney is the Holy Spirit. He said what he said. Dang, I should have changed this message. See? Every time. He said what he said. That would have been a good message title, but instead y'all stuck with Romans 5. It says we've been justified by faith and we have peace with God. And I want you to write this down because God's trying to bring joy back to his church. The joy of our salvation. Me and Brother Omar were talking about this the other day. And I want you to write this down. One of the biggest keys of having joy is having peace with God and having the peace of God. The biggest joys. This is what salvation does. It gives you peace with God and the peace of God. Watch this. Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. They were arguing about the rules. The church has got to stop arguing about when to have church and what is really this and when does water baptism happen. And no, 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 no. It's not about that stuff. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's about God's character, God's peace, God's joy. And you know that Greek word for joy? You know what it's translated as? Joy isn't mean happy. It means grace recognized. That when you visually and spiritually understand the grace that God has for you, the fruit of grace is joy. That's why it's so dangerous to swim. Because when you're swimming, you can't have joy. When you're receiving, you can have joy. It says it's one of the biggest keys having peace with God. And I want you to notice the difference. The difference, there's peace with God and the peace of God. God wants to make sure you have peace with him. And he went, hi, Isabella. I'm sorry, the one of the cutest little girls ever ran up front. And this is church, y'all. I'm going to say hi. Know that. Know that. I'm, I'm a dad before I'm a pastor. I'm a dad before I'm a pastor. It says this, joy means grace recognized. And, and here's the thing. I pray, and, and I'm starting to, I hate the fact that there's injustice in, in, in our nation. I hate the fact there's there injustice in the world. But one of the things that I'm learning about justice is that the world says no justice, no peace. But the Bible says no justification, no peace. I'm going to say that again because I feel like preaching up here. I'm telling you, the Holy Ghost, the world says no justice, no peace, which makes you think that if things don't change in society, I can never get to the place of peace. If equality doesn't happen, I can never get to the place of peace. But the Bible does not say no justice, no peace. The Bible says no justification, no peace. And here's what would happen. Here's the issue with justice is that justice comes to everybody. Justice is reserved for a day. Judgment day is justice day, and everyone would get whatever justice is. So the reason why we have to understand this is so important is justification and justice have the same root word. So when God exonerated you of all of your sins, that was justice to him. So we got to be careful that justified people demanding justice, there's a slippery slope. Because there's some things that need to change in our society 
But we also have to make sure we have that prayer of Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We need accountability, right? We need accountability in our culture. And all I'm saying is I believe that there is a justice movement coming to the church and that God is raising up Martin Luther King's, if you will, to bring a sense of equality to this nation. They're being raised up right now, black, white, brown, any color. But what God is waiting for is that the success of the justice is not what gives you peace. Your justification, you got to go to war with peace. You got to go to war with peace. Christians go to war with peace. We don't fight for peace. We fight with it. I feel like preaching today. There's only 20 people in here, but I feel the Holy Spirit in here. We don't fight for peace. We fight with it. We fight with it. God wants to know if you can fight with peace. This is so profoundly important, you guys. So profoundly important. It goes on to say this in verse, I only, oh my God, I only got through verse one. I might have to do part three. I'm scared. I was like, I'm preaching. I just looked at the clock. I'm on verse one. I'm so stressed. You guys are just like watching me just navigate this out of real time. I was like, this is going really well. And then I looked at my notes and I went to read and it said it had a two next to it. And I got confused. I'm like, a two? Oh, no. I haven't even got past verse one. How amazing is the Bible, though? That all of that could be in verse 1. That's why I wanted to read this whole thing. And we might do part 3, but I'm going to finish Romans 5. I'm ready for verse 2. Bang. This is wild. Through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And that word access, literally, it does mean access. But it also means that, that you have access into something that you didn't before. Face-to-face -face access. You have access to a place and a face. Remember when Moses, when Moses asked to see God, God said, you can't see my face. And now through the shed blood of Jesus, God's saying, you have access to my face. I will be with you in intimacy the way that I wasn't with Moses. You have access to what nobody had access to. It is access, and the access is by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And the next verse says, this is salvation. Salvation means you're justified, but not only are you justified, but now you can rejoice in hard times because you're saved. And it says this word rejoicing is not I'm excited Come on, nobody's excited about hard times. That's why, by the way, when you do a Bible study, you got to make sure that you look up the original words. So even when you see rejoice, say, you know, Google um, Bible Hub has a bunch of different things, but Google rejoice in the Greek. So th write this down. The New Testament is primarily in Greek. The Old Testament is primarily in Hebrew and Aramaic. So whenever you read something in the Bible, uh, uh, it's in the New Testament, Google the Greek word for rejoice. Click on it and read everything it means. Because if you don't do that, you will read this verse and it says, not only that, um, we rejoice in our sufferings. And you'll read it as, man, God wants me to be happy about hard times. No, but that's not what it means. In the Greek word, it comes from a word that means this. Listen to this definition. The root word of rejoice comes from a Greek word that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. 
But the root of this Greek word means neck, something that holds the head up. So, the, so, so in English, there are 400,000 words. There are not as many words in Greek and Hebrew. So what happens is they got to use a word that'll make you get it. So then they use the word for neck, meaning that they're trying to give you a prophecy that no matter what you go through, the prophet Tupac said, keep your head up. Rejoicing is not like, yay, persecution. Yay, I'm broke. I'm broke. I can't pay my bills. I'm broke. I'm broke. I can't pay my bills. I'm rejoicing in my suffering. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. And if we're not careful, you ever see someone, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I can't pay my bills, but I'm just so happy. That's not biblical rejoicing. Biblical rejoicing is in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your problem, you go from this to this. You're holding your head up high because you've been saved. Rejoicing is a head posture. Worshiping is a heart posture. So you got to stop getting in your head when things are going wrong. Oh, my God. I'm not going to get I got to keep going. Worshiping is a heart posture. Rejoicing is a head posture. It's keeping your head up. Keeping your head up. Keep your head up. So I could read it that way. Not only that, but we keep our head up in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because through salvation, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And verse six, it goes on and says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you think you're godly, I'm not godly. Oh, you want to live godly lives? Yes, we do. But Christ did not wait for you to live a godly life to die for you. He waited until you were ungodly and he chose to die for you then. This is so important because it goes on to say, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person would even dare to die. But God shows his love how? that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we talk about the love of God in the church, right, you know, we say, like, we love that for you. Could have named it that. We love that for you. Oh, we love that. We don't ever talk about suffering like that. You ever know that annoying person? Like, you just, you just got that person that challenges all of your Christianity. You don't like them. The Bible says that God is impressed with how you love them. Like sometimes we call ourselves loving because we love the lovable. But no, Christ loved the unlovable. You were not lovable at that time. And God says, yep, now. Matter of fact, when Christ was uh, having the last supper, he said, one of y'all going to betray me. And of course, I think it probably was Peter. Which one? Certainly not I. They all did. Right. And, uh, Jesus said, the one I passed the bread to. Now, in Jewish culture, in a communion table like that, uh, whoever sat next to the household, that was a statement. The closer you were sitting next to the person, the royalty, the king, the more that that person was trying to honor you or show everyone in the room, this is my favorite. So watch this. He said, the one I passed the bread to. I want you to ask yourself this question. If Judas was an arm's length, 
of Jesus and Jesus knew it was Judas, why do we put people at the end of the table and still call it church? It's not that they're in the room. It's that they're in my life that makes it love. And what I'm learning about church is we can say, no matter where you've been or what you've been through, you're welcome here. We say, welcome home. We're talking about here, in the room, no matter where you've done, no matter what crimes you've committed, no matter how annoying you are, God wants you to know you're welcome here. But no, 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 no. Real love from a Christian says, you're not just welcome here, you're welcome here. You're welcome in my heart. You're welcome in my life. That's the love of God. It's not just that you love someone. It's the condition they are in when you give the love that matters the most. We got to give our best love to the worst people. And I I believe there's a reality in that because I'm thinking about some worst people right now. I'm looking around, but nobody in this room. These people are amazing. But I don't feel like God gives me any credit for loving anybody in this room. That's all you love, Roger, Neil, and Lynn. God's like, so? They're lovable. Oh, you just, the way you love Nelson and Amy, geez. You know, we always say that, like, y'all are really great people. It is that dude that stabbed me in the back, that rolled me under the bus. I'm not saying no names, but I have been so loving to this person, they wouldn't know they're my enemy. The Bible doesn't say, it says love your enemies. And I believe if we're loving our enemies properly, they don't know they're our enemies. You know how, and I'm saying I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. But this is an area because I've been an enemy of God and he gave me this love. I strive for perfection in loving my enemies because the love that God lavished on me when he saved me and set me free while I was still a sinner. And there are a couple of enemies that I love so well, they think we're friends. Let's just let that marinate. Let that little point be like more of a crock pot than a microwave. You sit in that. You love somebody so much, they're your enemy, but they think you're friends. That's love. They don't know. It says, so God showed his love for us that while we are still sinners, it's not just what Christ has done, it's when he did it. He did it while we were still sinners, and this is salvation. Christ came and died while we were sinners. If he waited for us to get our act together, it is not salvation. It says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Wait, we're going to be saved? Isn't God loving? And what's with the wrath stuff? Put in the chat, I deserve God's wrath. Let's get, let's get encouraging. <laughs> Put in the chat, I deserve God's wrath up in here. You ever heard a worship song? <laughs> you ever heard a word? You notice we clean up a lot of our worship songs. I personally have never heard a worship song saying, God's wrath was meant for us all. God's wrath, no one singing along, was meant for us all. 
When I say God's, you say wrath. God. God. <laughs> that doesn't get the party going. That, that DJ never says that at the Christian party. But I've been contemplating a lot about God's wrath. And I read this book one time on the, well, let me not lie to you. I read a few chapters one time on this book on the theology of salvation. And it was saying that what is the most important thing that you could understand about God? And it was talking about helping people understand salvation. And it says, what is the most important thing you can understand about God? Most people would say, especially in the church where we're trying to make sure that people feel the most important thing you need to understand is that God loves you. But that's not the most important thing, according to this theologian. The most important thing is that God is holy. The second most important thing is that because God is holy, anything that is unholy is the object of his wrath. Then, love. Why? Because when you have a revelation that God is holy, and when you have a revelation that you're unholy, and you have a revelation that the wrath is God puts on everything that is unholy, now it is overwhelming that he gives you love. Because it is a holy God not giving wrath to the unholy. And there is nowhere in scripture where God withheld wrath. But when Jesus came, Jesus took the wrath that was meant for you and me. This is why on the cross, he said, God, why have you forsaken me? And Bible scholars believe in that moment, that was the only time in his life he had been separated from God. You left me. And we run around telling everybody, which is true, God will never leave you or forsake you. And yes, that's true. But you know why? Because there was a moment where Jesus was left on a cross. He was left there. And he literally told his father in heaven, why have you left me? Why have you left me? He bore the sins of humanity on himself. What an overwhelming moment. I mean, some of us are overwhelmed with our own mistakes and our failures. How many people do you think have lived in 3,000 years? How many people you think will be on this earth for all of eternity? A hundred billion? Jesus had a hundred billion sins on himself. hundred billion. On the cross, Jesus had all of my sins in the eternal realm in the natural. So Jesus, we always talk about the cross and that he was beaten. No, but he had the physical pain of the cross and the spiritual pain of separation. Oh, he was hurting. He was hurting. And he had nails in his hands and nails in his feet. And he was thinking about you. He's on the cross going, if I pull myself down, what about Jen? And Adam, that little boy they're going to have. What about Macy and Kyle and Wes? I got to stay on here. It's for them. And the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I want you to picture this. Jesus is on the cross, not going, it's for them. 
It brought them joy. It's for them. This hurts so bad, but it's for them. And I know that if I stay up here, Jessica and I get to be together forever. You know how profound that is? Oh, wait a minute. I got it wrong. We might be together forever. I'll do it at the shop. Wasn't even guaranteed. I'll do it. I'll take the shot. You are worth him dying even if you would say no. You understand who Jesus is, and I just wish we'd spend some more time talking about Jesus. He's so good. He's so good. It says we were the enemies of God, reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more that we are reconciled now. We shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jeez. The word reconcile means that we've changed to the same position. We're not opposites anymore. We're together. And God did that with the death of, of Jesus. And then it goes on to say, Something oddly strange. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Wait, what? Isn't it your fault? I just talked about your sin and your mistakes. And God says, yes, yeah, sin came in the world through one man. Wouldn't you think God would go, yeah, it's all your fault? Ah, oh, man, that guy, Adam, man, I gave him responsibility for being fruitful and multiply. And he sinned and multiplied sin. So sin came in the world through Adam. What? Read Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. The Bible says he turned to the serpent and said, because you did this. One of the things we do as Christians, we blame the wrong people. And sometimes blaming the wrong people is blaming ourselves. We were born into sin. It's not a fault. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And here's the crazy thing about that. Is the very first death in the Bible... The very first death in the Bible was not Abel when Cain killed Abel. The very first death in the Bible on record was an animal that had to die when God made animal skins to cover up the shame of Adam and Eve. Because remember they had sewed fig leaves together and God sacrificed the life of an animal to cover the shame of his children. And then thousands of years later, he would sacrifice his son to cover the shame of you and I. My goodness. I told you, Romans 5 might be the right title. This is unbelievable. And it says, uh, sin came in the world through one man, verse 12, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted when there is no law. It says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. He was saying that your sin wasn't as bad as Adam's sin because Adam was supposed to do what Jesus did. So had Jesus sinned, it would have been so bad because his assignment was to not sin. 
That was Adam's assignment. Matter of fact, if you read the book of Romans, it calls Jesus the second Adam. He's the second son. Adam was my first son, was supposed to do what I called Jesus to do. And so because Adam didn't do what he was supposed to do, Jesus, who is both God and spirit, came out of heaven and put on the skin that God wanted Adam to wear so he could do what God wanted Adam to do. And because of that, we're saved. So listen to this. The free gift is not like the trespass. God's gift of salvation, God's gift of righteousness is better than all the sins of all of humanity. I want you to get that in your brain that God is saying this act of Jesus is better than 100 billion people's sins. The gift is better than the trespass. Well, why is this so hard to understand? Because you get what you pay for. In what world is something free of any value at all? Have you ever been online and see a Rolls Royce ad and it goes, buy one, get one free? No. They don't give that. They don't give that stuff away. You know, Gucci doesn't go on sale. Things of value don't go on sale. Teslas aren't on sale. There's no December to remember for a Tesla where the doors go up on the side. That's for a Toyota. Teslas don't go on sale. We live in a culture where if it's free, it must not be worth much. So God took the most valuable thing and gave it to you for free? He said it's free. He said it's free. And it's free. And the free gift is not like the result. This is verse 16 of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, one mistake, one sin brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, which means sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will who those will receive the abundance of grace, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So then now, being justified what you accomplish as a Christian is not based off what you do, but based off what you receive. He says, if you receive this free gift, you will reign in life. Whenever I see a human that is not doing well, I, I know they're not good at receiving. They're not. Uh, you try to buy a person a cup of coffee. Oh, no, 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 I can't. No, 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 no. When's that time you try to do something really profoundly generous for someone? And they go... That's so good, man. I received that. It's just like, oh, you, I can't let you do that. We live in that world. I can't let you do that. And if we're not careful, that's how we live with Jesus. I can't let you do that. I can't let you do that. Why? Oh, that would have been another good title. I can't let you do that. It would been better than Romans 5. Why are we swimming? Sometimes I talked about last week about swimming. Sometimes the Savior is out there and we just simply say, I can't let you do that. You told me not to do it. I can't let you do that. Go out there and be, be with your family. No, no, no. You better let him do it. You better let him do it. 50 Cent, some years back, put out an album called Get Rich or Die Trying. 
And I, that, style, that title always stuck out to me. Get rich or die trying. The value that we put on being rich. Get rich or die trying. But you know, if I ever wrote a book, I might call it Get Righteous or Die Trying. Because we put such a value on righteousness that we're willing to die to say that we are. And death, the law, you being righteous and not receiving what Christ has done. Romans 5 says that you trying, you swimming will kill you. You cannot save yourself. And it ends with this simple thing in verse 17, uh, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to show us, to increase the trespass, to give us revelation that we were wrong. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also reigns. When you receive grace properly, grace is in charge. Does grace reign in your life? Or is it a spiritual concept you understand? When you make a mistake, is grace the king? When someone else makes a mistake, is grace reigning? Reigning. Grace should have a throne when you fail. Grace should have a throne when you sin. When, when sin abounds, grace increases. Matter of fact, sin activates the grace of God. It says grace would reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think about last week's sermon and I think about Paul and I think about the jailer and I think about Acts chapter 9 verse 4 when Paul had really let God down. Paul used to be Saul. He was on his way to kill some Christians and doing crazy stuff. In Acts chapter 9 verse 4, Jesus shows up to Saul in a vision and says, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had let God down. And then Acts chapter 16, verse 23, that same Saul would later be Paul and he's in the prison worshiping like this passage of scripture I preached last week. And one line stood out to me as I read that verse over and over again this week. It said that Paul and his companions were severely beaten and they were thrown into prison and the jailer was ordered to make sure that they didn't escape. So Paul had let God down and the jailer had let people down and both should have resulted in death because the jailer, that culture was if you let them out, you died. Paul let God down. The jailer let people down. And in that verse, they were severely beaten. It would seem as if God had let all of them down. But no. The Bible says, Saul said, Paul said, we're all here. You're not going to lose your life because Christ saved the mine. And Paul knew that if he left and he escaped that prison, it would kill the jailer. And I want to tell somebody right now that you've been following God and it feels like a prison. It feels like things are not going well. And I wonder that moment when Paul, the chains were broken 
And he started to run. And he said, wait. I know what's going to happen to this guy back here if I run from this. Hey, man, we're all here. You're good. There's so many times I want to run from what I'm doing. This was not my plan. I want to run from being a lead pastor. I know Christina wants to run. We talk about running. We talk about where we would run to. We've had conversations about where we would run to. There is a running plan. It's like earthquake preparedness, like a running plan. Every time I think to run, every time I want to run with my family, I think about what would happen to somebody if I ran. I just turn around. We're all here. And I think that being a part of Oasis Church, being a builder, being a true follower of Christ, being truly saved is allowing God to put you in a situation and being able to turn around when you want to run and saying, nope, we're all here. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you, God, for your grace and we thank you, God, for your mercy. Father, I know that we read a lot of scripture and I'm praying right now that someone would have the discipline, the hunger and the passion to search the scriptures for themselves, get additional revelation, begin to allow your word to uncover things in their heart, God, and that these two messages I preached on salvation would not be the end, but just the beginning of a hunger to understand what it really means to be saved. So, Father, we're asking for your guidance. We're asking for your Holy Spirit to lead us to the truth so we can truly be free. We can truly live out the salvation you have called us to live out. And that will bring us joy. In Jesus' name, amen.